Hello and welcome to Voice Box, your weekly journey into the heart of the human voice. I'm Chloe Veltman and it's smashing to be here with you once again. What does it mean to know a piece of vocal music? I mean to really know it. There are clearly different levels of familiarity. Simply recognising a song is one level. There's undeniable pleasure to hearing a track in a bar when we're out with friends and sharing the moment of enlightenment. Being able to hum the tune takes us to the next level. Knowing all the lyrics goes even further. And then we get into more professional terrain, where musicians know enough about a song to understand its inner workings, the harmonic progressions, the discrepancies between different versions, the performance history, and so on. What enlightenment do these deeper levels of understanding bring? And really, what's the point of having any of this stuff embedded in our brains when we can access most of what we need to know about nearly anything at the touch of a button by going online? On tonight's show, we're going to explore some of these questions, and we're going to do it by looking at the life and work of a composer who not only wrote some of the most amazing works for the human voice in Western history, but also lived so long ago and has such a shadowy biography that getting to know his music with any degree of depth seems about as remote a possibility as time travel. The composer in question is Josquin Desprez. Josquin, as he is often called, was a Franco-Flemish composer of the Renaissance. He was born sometime in the 1450s and died in 1521 and was among the biggest rock stars of his day. Let's hear a piece of his music now. If you've just joined us, welcome. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox, Public Radio's weekly series dedicated to exploring all things singing related. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and at voicebox-media.org. We're exploring what it means to possess deep knowledge of a piece of vocal music, especially if it's extremely old. We just heard the Crucifixus movement from the Missa la Sol Fa Re Mi by Josquin Desprez. The performance was given by Cut Circle, a group that specialises in performing Renaissance music. Which brings me to tonight's guest in the studio, Jesse Roden. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for joining me tonight. Hi, Chloe. Jesse is the director of the ensemble we just heard, and he's also an assistant professor of music at Stanford University, who's working at the forefront of scholarly research into Josquin. His book, Josquin's Rome, Hearing and Composing in the Sistine Chapel, is forthcoming this fall from Oxford University Press. He's at work on new editions of Josquin's music, and he's also in charge of something called the Josquin Research Project, for which he recently received a big digital innovation grant, and we'll get to that later on in the show. In short, if anyone can be said to know the music of Josquin, it's Jesse. So Jesse, who was Josquin? Can you give us a brief overview of his life and work? 
It's actually not not such a simple question, but <laughs> I could give you a brief overview. <laughs> Josquin is the most famous composer of the Renaissance, arguably, certainly of his generation. As mm-hmm. you said, born around 1450 or so. And um, ha- part of the problem I'm already stumbling is that we have so many gaps in our knowledge of Josquin's life. From the 1480s, we can begin to track him quite well. Uh, actually, a little bit earlier than that. From 1475, we know he was a singer in the chapel of René of Anjou in southern France. And then we know he went to Italy in the 1480s and spent time in the courts of Milan and Rome and the Sistine Chapel. That's what my book's about. Uh, later, we can find him in Ferrara as Maestro di Capella at the, at the court there. And then he retires back up to the north where he came from in a little town called Condé sur Lescaut. Mm-hmm. Um, but frankly, there are many more unknowns than there are knowns when it comes to Josquin's biography. Okay, so how did you come to be so interested in this composer? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's because I'm a singer by training. As from, from a very young age, I did a lot of singing vocal music, um, choral music, that is. And um, I only discovered Josquin in college, actually, taking a course as an undergraduate at University of Pennsylvania. But something about it um, spoke to me. I think it was the fact that, unlike so much more recent choral music, you have often four lines going at once, and they're all interesting. There's not a melody and accompaniment, but no matter what part you're singing, there's something, there's something going on. And with Josquin, what's going on is often extremely interesting. So why should we care about this music um, as singers and lovers of vocal music? You know, why bother take the time and energy to get to know Josquin and his works better? <coughs> Josquin is arguably right up there with the very best composers in Western music history. You know, his name is off uttered, at least by musicologists, in the same breath as Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, and all these composers. Stravinsky. Stravinsky and, and so on. And... Um, you know, he has all the technical proficiency and ability to, to produce technically complex musical services of someone like Bach, but he is also an extraordinary melodist, and he can make processes unfold over long spans and his music create glorious climaxes at the end of, ends of pieces, like the one that we heard at the beginning of the program. Mm-hmm. Um, my singers in, in Cut Circle always comment on just how nicely the lines fall under the voice, for one mm-hmm. thing. So it's, it's, it sits easily in the voice. Um, that said, it's often technically challenging in a way that is fun. Um, lines that swoop up really quickly to a high note, um, or there's a characteristic melodic gesture Josquin likes to do where he'll attack a high note and then in the same melodic line have the singer attack the note over and over and over again, kind of creating, building up anticipation for a, for a, finally, for a cadence, for a moment of relaxation. So that's the kind of thing that can be really fun to do as a singer. So there were a lot of brilliant composers around when Josquin was alive, but unless you're a super early music wonk, it's likely that you'll never have heard of Gaspar van Verbecker and Marbrianus de Orto. Josquin, however, is much more well-known today. So what sets Josquin's music apart from his accomplished contemporaries, Jesse? Yeah, I think there's a danger in framing it such that Josquin is simply better than all the others, which is how it's often framed sort of mm-hmm. on the internet, or if you will. But um, it's not really that, or it could be that, but it certainly doesn't have to be that. It's more that Josquin's writing does, his music does things that we just don't find in such concentration elsewhere. Um, I think the, the main thing it does is to, in, is to explore repetition in a, in a new way. Uh, a way that was new f- uh, around the 1480s and 1490s when he started doing it in earnest. And it, it's sort of two strategies at once. It's both kind of technical interest in taking musical ideas and packing them in together. So he'll take one little simple melody and he'll 
put in all the voice parts at once practice so that you hear it over and over again in different configurations uh, interlocking with itself in all sorts of different ways uh, and sometimes this is very hard to do you know it can sound sort of simple uh, there's the same thing again but actually making it work right getting it to actually fit with itself is quite tricky so it's both that kind of technical proficiency and also um, a real aesthetic goal that comes out of it which is sort of a concentration of one idea that bursts forward into taken to the max yeah, yeah. <laughs> so why don't we listen to three excerpts so we can get a better understanding of what distinguishes Josquin from people like Ver Becker and De Otto first we'll hear part of the Sanctus from Josquin's Misa Fortuna Desperata and then we'll go to Ver Becker for the first section of his Ave Regina Celorum and finally we'll take in the first section of the Gloria from De Otto's Misa Ad Fugam so in the first excerpt, the Sanctus of Josquin's, um, the thing to listen for above, above all is the top voice called the superius, which is simply repeating the same formulaic gesture over and over again at two pitch levels. Uh, it's Sanctus, Sanctus. It's just that little gesture. So that is happening against something that you won't hear, which is an exact quotation from the song on which this mass is based. So Mujoskan's managed to fit this repeating idea, this very simple repeating idea, against a pre-existing melody that he didn't write. So it's both the technical complexity of getting it to work, but also just the accumulated energy that happens listening to that same thing over and over again. And Verbecker? In, in this particular excerpt by, by Gaspar, I'd call him, okay. um, you, we find a lot of, uh, first of all, a very smooth musical surface, melodic lines that sort of move up and down very gently, and um, mel melodic sequences, that is uh, an, a gesture that's, then, that's stated once and then repeated up a step and then up another step and so on. And finally, the Marbrianus de Orto. So in my, in my book, I called de Orto a contrapuntal maximalist. He's mm -hmm. someone who likes flooding the texture with notes. There are notes everywhere. And this piece is based on a canon, which means that the tenor is always following what the superius does a, a measure or two later. Uh, and that contributes to the effect, but really all the voices are involved in just singing it so much uh, that it's very dense and kind of wonderful, but in a sort of overwhelming way.
You're tuned into Voicebox with me, Chloe Veltman. Don't forget you can access our free podcasts, playlists, and all kinds of other information about our series at voicebox-media.org. All right. Well, now that we've gotten a sense, Jesse, of what makes Josquin unique, I thought we could delve more deeply into this notion of what it means to get to know his music, to really know his music. I gather from our conversations that, are, that there are particular challenges on this front. Please, can you outline the main problems that surround the study of Josquin's music on the academic side of things? Yeah, I'd say there are actually five main problems, and they all run together, creating a really uh, nasty soup. Um, <laughs> the biggest one, or one of the biggest ones, is the biography which mm-hmm. I, we started with, just that there are quite a lot of holes even now. We, we've learned a lot more about Josquin's biography in the last couple of decades. There have been some archival discoveries that have upended some some earlier ideas. But even with those new um, discoveries uh, taken on board, we still have serious gaps. So that's one problem. Then there's the problem of chronology. We don't really have much to go on when it comes to dating his his music. This is somebody who was writing music presumably from sometime in the 1470s until close to his death in 1521. But we all too often are relying only on the first appearance of a given piece in a surviving manuscript or music print, which may or may not tell us when it was actually written. Uh, there are very few pieces that we can actually put a firm date to, like fewer than five. Oh, yeah. gosh, fewer than five I'd out say, of yeah. the hundreds that are attributed to him, right? Yeah, and that's the other problem. In fact, the worst problem of, of all, I'd say. Problem number three. Yeah, problem number three is authenticity. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did he actually write? I counted. It turns out he wrote, uh, there are 336 pieces that have Josquin's name on them in some source or another, dating from the late 1480s all the way into the very end of the 16th century. But of those, we can't be sure about most. In fact, Uh by my count, there are only 50-something, about 54 that are really rock solid. And every Josquin scholar would laugh if they heard me say that, because the number must be higher than that. You know, I would happily admit 100, 120 without too much problem, but that's still enormously less than 336. Uh So we have this constant problem of trying to work out what he wrote and what he didn't. There are all sorts of reasons for why pieces got attributed to him erroneously. Uh, uh-huh. Publishers could probably make more money by putting his name on prints, but it could also simply be things like confusion. He wrote a piece called Un Musque de Biscay, and someone wrote a mass called Misa Un Musque de Biscay, and maybe some, ma- uh, some scribe thought that it was Josquin's mass. Probably wasn't, but could have been. <laughs> so there are all sorts of reasons misattributions happened or could have happened, but it's very difficult for us at such a chronological distance to untangle that. Uh huh. So problem number four and five? Problems four and five are uh, subtler. Um, problem four has to do with Josquin's reception. He's really the first composer in Western music history whose fame, uh, who, who was famous far after his death. Uh, that has to do in large part with the advent of music printing. Right in 1501, um, the famous music printer Petrucci prints the first volume of polyphonic music, and a year later he devotes a whole volume to Josquin's masses. It's not for nothing, Josquin must have been known at the time, but that starts a firestorm, and within the next couple decades, all of a sudden, Josquin's music is being printed and disseminated all over Europe. That's very nice, but it means that we have a, we have an, an enormous 16th century tradition of uh, music prints of, Josquin, prints of Josquin's music, and also anecdotes attesting to Josquin's fame, all sorts of stories talking about uh, things Josquin did or in, in some cases did not do. Uh, Isn't that a good thing? Yeah, no, we have all sorts of, of nice I- information from 16th century sources. The problem is that most of those uh, writers didn't actually know Josquin personally. So you have these stories that originate sometime 
after his death, say, and or maybe in his lifetime, but then take on a life of their own, oh. and 20, 30, 40 years later are still being told as if they reveal something about his actual personality, which they probably don't. Oh, I see. Okay. So, the, yeah, so actually, the, the information we have about Josquin is heavily weighted toward the posthumous, right? <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> you know, there's a famous remark by uh, a music uh, theorist named Georg Foster who says that now that Josquin is dead, he's composing a lot more than when he was alive. <laughs> Do you find that to be the case? That is Here's part the of case. the problem. Uh, of those 336 pieces, quite a lot of them don't turn up in any musical source till after Josquin's uh, death. It's a bit like the sort of resurrection of Elvis or something. Yeah. People seeing him everywhere long exactly. after. There are He'd... sightings everywhere. Yeah. So I think we still have a fifth problem to account for. The fifth problem isn't talked about as much, but it's, um, I would say, the problem of the lingua franca, the mm-hmm. problem of trying to figure out what the music of the late 15th and early 16th centuries actually sounds like and how Josquin's is different or not different from what's around him. So we were starting to do that just a minute ago, listening to excerpts by uh, two of his contemporaries. But it's really quite a difficult challenge because a lot of that music is not in modern ears at all. Uh, The two composers whose music we just heard, those are premier recordings. You're not going to find any others. Mm-hmm. Or, or hardly any. And that problem extends to many other of Josquin's contemporaries, uh, even to Josquin himself. Certainly of the 336, there are many, many that are not recorded on CD. So it's it's very difficult for us, I think, as modern scholars to, to come to terms with what Josquin is doing and how that's different from what's around him. What So if, if a scholarly, scholarly community is getting itself all tied up in knots over Josquin for however many years. How has this actually impacted the performance and recordings of his music? I think the main way it's impacted the the performance is the question of which pieces are actually performed. Uh, There are some famous pieces that were part of the canon, say, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, but have since been knocked out. That's sort of, there's a history of knocking pieces out of the canon. Someone comes along and says, wait a minute, this one isn't safe either. Uh, and so you have a, a famous motet like Absalon Philimi, which uh, is attributed to Josquin, the only sources that survive, but now there's serious question about whether he actually wrote it. And huh. so you find it being performed a little less often. Huh, that's a shame in a way, because it's a beautiful piece of music. Absolutely. And you know, I'd be the first to say that, there, that Josquin wrote some bad pieces and that t- some pieces that he didn't write are absolutely spectacular. So it's silly for it to be uh, framed in that way, but there's a tendency for uh, for performing ensembles to kind of cash in on Josquin. And if it's no longer by Josquin, then, well, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the the way in which some of these works are performed and the, and the, the emphasis that was placed uh, for a long time on somehow conflating the way the way that the, that you would perform a piece like by someone like Palestrina, um, who was around a bit later, and and Josquin, who was around earlier, and I, you know, arguably a completely different kind of a composer. Yeah, I think I think the issue there is that uh, scholars first came to fifteenth-century composers from uh, the front, from the sixteenth century, uh, having already studied music by Palestrina and Lasso and people like that, and so I think there was a bit of a tendency to want to see Josquin in particular as kind of leading up to that great high renaissance, I I have scare quotes going as I say (laughs) that, high renaissance style, and to interpret his music in that light. Uh, And so there are certain features that will often be talked about of Josquin's music that, that are said to be characteristic, that it's not that they're uncharacteristic, but that they're probably less important than would seem if you're looking to find things that you see in Palestrina. The best example is probably Josquin as the text, the great setter of text, that he's sort of the proto-madrigal composer, the mm-hmm. one who really is sensitive to the meaning uh, of the words. And there's a bit of evidence for that, but not all that much. 
All right. Well, you know, while we're talking about Palestrina, I'd love to play a little bit of his music so that we can get a sense of the this so-called high Renaissance style um, with which Josquin's music was uh, so often conflated in the past for such a long time, perhaps even today still conflated with it. Here are the Talis scholars with a Kyrie from Palestrina's Missa Benedicta S. This is Voicebox and I'm Chloe Veltman. I'm in the studio with the music scholar Jesse Rodin, who's based at Stanford and is a specialist in the music of Josquin Desprez. What we heard just now was a bit from a mass by Palestrina, who comes slightly later in music history than Josquin, but whose music has come to be conflated in some ways with the earlier composers, thus muddying the way in which modern vocal ensembles approach the performance of Josquin's work. What can you tell us about what we just heard, Jesse? I think it's you know it's useful to to frame what we just heard in light of what we heard before you know and and to think about any style change as a series of gains and losses right whenever style changes something you lose something and you gain something well what do you gain with Palestrina you have this very lush rich texture of five six voices every slice uh, there's a full chord we'd say a full sonority uh, which is to say it's very rich sounding um, but it comes at a price and the price is I think mainly rhythm that the rhythmic palette is stripped way down, all these very simple uh, gestures that work well when they're put together in a, in a very big five or six voice musical texture. Whereas what Josquin's doing more of the time is writing pretty, uh, pretty angular rhythms and also melodic lines to match. So that mass is actually based on a piece by Josquin. And tellingly, the very opening that we hear Palestrina takes out the one unusual thing in the in Josquin's melodic line, which is a, a sort of funny leap. So it's both stripped down rhythmically and also melodically evened out, smoothed out. Um, and that's part of what's going on in the change from the 15th to the 16th centuries. Well, so having sidestepped into the higher Renaissance for a moment with a piece from Palestrina, let's get right back to Josquin. Um, what can you tell us, Jesse, of the ways in which vocal groups have approached the composer's music in the past? What kind of trends have you observed in the performance history of this music? Yeah, well, we could go way back, but even if we just stick to sort of the the mid uh, to late 20th century, you know, I think you have to uh, approach those early recordings understanding how little we knew about these styles. So we were always kind of looking at two, three hundred years worth of music kind of as if it were the same thing. Um, It's almost inevitable when you're confronting so much foreign material. So there were all sorts of approaches. Um, First, if you think about the way opera singers uh, sang or or singers in general Mm -hmm. were trained in classical music institutions in the mid 20th century, it's not surprising that you have some ensembles that sing with a lot of vibrato. Mm -hmm. That's something that's gone out of fashion. Um, 
It's something we think probably wasn't a feature of most performances of Renaissance polyphony, in part because all that vibrato it gets in the way of clarity. And mm -hmm. clarity is very important, both for the tuning of the, of the piece and also just to hear the individual lines mm -hmm. interweave. So um, I thought we could take a look at how a variety of different vocal ensembles have approached the performance of Josquin's music over the decades. Let's start with a recording from 1972 of a work by Josquin, the Miserere Mei Deus, performed by Capella Antiqua München. So this is a really spirited performance and wonderful in certain ways. Um, but what they are doing is several of the parts are doubled with uh, instruments. Well, let's move now to the 1980s for a performance so different that it's hard to imagine that the work we're about to hear and the one we just heard were possibly written by the same composer. <laughs> so here's a recording of Josquin's Nymphe des Bois Requiems, a lament for Okechem's death. And it's performed by Pro Cantione Antiqua. And uh, the track was recorded in 1982. Pro Cantione Antiqua's 1982 recording of Josquin's Nympha de Bois Requiem, a lament for Okechem's death. This is Voicebox with me, Chloe Veltman. I'm in the studio with the Renaissance music scholar Jesse Rodin, and we're talking about Josquin and what it means to get to know a piece of vocal music in enough detail to truly embody it. Jesse, what was going on in the last recording in terms of the level of knowledge that the artists had of Josquin's artistry? Actually, they might have known a fair amount of Josquin's music. That ensemble, you know, there's singers that are trained in a, in a particular way of singing that involves quite a lot of vibrato, and you hear that. And it's so quite heavy. It's quite heavy, and it is a lament, so the tempo, it's not crazy that the tempo should be on the slow side, but when you combine the slow tempo and the heavy vibrato, it is a bit um, turgid, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and yeah, I think it does make it, again, difficult to hear the detail in the, in the music. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a reason to believe that Josquin wouldn't have wanted his, uh, this particular piece performed in that way? There's a little bit of reason. <laughs> it's, we're, we're honestly in the dark more than some are willing to admit about how singers were trained and, and how they sang. A lot of the evidence we have for, for sort of the values that, uh, that were prized in vocal, sing, in, in vocal music come from later oh, periods. Okay. Uh -huh. So in, in this period, we're a little bit out in the dark. 
Well, let's hear just one more recording which illustrates the sometimes fraught connection between scholarship about Josquin and the performance of his works over time. Jesse, what should we be aware of in this recording we're about to hear by the Talis scholars from 1986 of Josquin's Ave Maria Virgo Serena? Well, you're going to hear a shift. Uh, if those earlier performances are characterized by adding lots of instruments or singing with lots of vibrato, here all of a sudden the Talis scholars, and, and they're really the first to do it, I think, in a big way, uh, and this recording is an iconic one um, of an iconic piece, uh, they're emphasizing clarity above all else. So the, they, they're trying to achieve timbral equality across all the voices and, all the, and the entire range. Um, they they don't want too many contrasts and dynamics. They don't want the phrases to be shaped very dramatically. The idea is smoothness, mm -hmm. elegance, smoothness, balance. Uh, and that's what we'll hear very beautifully in this recording. You're tuned into Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman. Don't forget you can access our free podcasts, playlists, and other useful information about our series at voicebox-media.org. We're exploring what it means to truly know a piece of vocal music, especially when the piece was written hundreds of years ago by a composer, Josquin, whose life we don't know very much about. My guest in the studio is Jesse Rodin, who is in the music department at Stanford University and directs Cut Circle, a vocal ensemble specialising in Renaissance music. The track we just heard was from a 1986 recording by the Talis scholars of Josquin's Ave Maria Virgo Serena. Jesse, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. To many ears, um, the three recordings we listened to over the past, I don't know, 10 minutes or so, all sound great. And in fact, you know, the last piece, even though I know you don't particularly love it, is this sort of seminal Josquin piece that we hear all the time. So I'm wondering, at the end of the day, do the issues that you as a specialist in this kind of music encounter when listening to many recordings and live performances really matter in the grand scheme of things? <laughs> Matter in what sense? Well, I mean, you know, if we, if to the average ear it all sounds lovely, mm. um, how important is it to have this super duper in depth knowledge? I don't think everyone needs to have it for, for anything, for any music, for any art, for any anything at all. But um, I think there's something to be said for coming to know something in a really intimate way where you really care about differences and say how it's performed or how a painting is displayed or something like that. Uh, it gives you a level of insight into a whole, in this case, a musical world that you couldn't have otherwise. Right? I'm a historian. I'm interested in trying to imagine what it was like to hear music in, let's say, 1490. Uh, what what was it like to sing it or listen to it? Mm -hmm. But do you think that embodying these ideas makes for superior performance at the end of the day? I'd shy away from superior. I think performance, you know, there, there are fashions that, that will come and go. And uh, the, the kind of um, 
aesthetic that I, I'll be advocating for is going to probably seem passe in 20 years. So I'd be the, I'd be the last person to say that we have to do it a certain way. But at, at the same time, we can note certain advantages and disadvantages to different approaches. And looking at the early history of recordings, I think it's fair to say that there are certain stumbles that happened along the way toward getting to, to a place where we have somewhat better sense of how to approach the pieces. Okay. You mean like some of the things we've been talking about, the yeah. heavy vibrato, for example, the use of musical instruments, or maybe even just a very flat, glassy sound, kind of like what we just heard of the Talis Scholars, which seems to you know, have no real emotional content in a way. Yeah. If you think about, you know, I was talking about rhythmic energy before as something that characterizes music of the 15th century more generally, that flat, glassy sound, as you put it, doesn't, isn't exactly conducive to bringing out rhythmic energy. So you could say that nonetheless, that's the value you want to privilege, but you are then missing out on maybe one of the central features of what makes 15th century music distinct, if you sing it that way. You're listening to Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. Don't forget to visit voicebox-media.org to access our free weekly podcasts and get playlists and other great information about our series. What we just heard was part of a MIDI file, a computer rendering of Preta Rerum Serium by the Franco-Flemish Renaissance composer that we're talking about this evening, Josquin Desprez. The file comes from the Josquin Research Project, a formidable new digital resource that looks like it will help people to gain an even greater insight into the music not only of Josquin, but other composers too. Tonight's guest, Stanford music professor Jesse Rodin, is the director of the project, for which he was recently awarded a Digital Innovation Fellowship from the American Council of Learned Societies. <laughs> Sounds so grand, Jesse. So what is the Josquin Research Project? Uh, what does it do? And how will the dinky-sounding MIDI file that we just heard help us deepen our knowledge of Josquin and others like him? Well, I should say that the dinky-sounding MIDI file is the least important aspect of the Josquin Research Project. But it's a project designed to help us access and analyze Renaissance music. Uh, the goal is to put digital scores of ultimately hundreds and thousands of pieces of Renaissance music on the web and make them fully searchable so that any user could punch in a string of notes, a string of intervals, a string of rhythms, and see a complete score of all the pieces where those appear with the relevant notes highlighted. Uh, it's also a tool that it, it also uh, incorporates a lot of analytical tools so that you can see things about the way the music works uh, over a large body of pieces or for any specific piece. So with all this knowledge at your fingertips, Jesse, uh, I know that you have pretty strong ideas about what makes a great performance of a piece of vocal music by Josquin, one of his contemporaries. And I thought we could round out our hour together, which is ticking by fast, by playing a few tracks by current ensembles that, in your opinion, are getting it right in terms of how to approach singing 15th century vocal music. Capilla Flamenca is performing a piece by a composer named Johannes Prioris, a contemporary of Josquin who's really not very well known at all. But what's nice about this performance, I think, is just the energy they bring and the clarity of their sound. Mm -hmm. 
Then the Clark group. This is a weird recording. It's a, a recording of music by Johannes Tinctoris, who's the most famous music theorist of the 15th century, but also a, quite a wonderful composer. Uh, and they sing with extraordinary energy, and uh, so much so that it could be a little jarring. Okay, and then the, the third track, the Musica Antiqua of London, what about that? This is the craziest of the three, and, uh -huh. and I don't know that I'd advocate it, but it's certainly, uh, it's certainly worth hearing just because it's so different. First, it's extremely fast, maybe too fast, but again, this issue of vocal timbre is, is really uh, comes into play. I think one of the singers was trained in Bulgaria in a different kind of maybe folk tradition, um, and you can just hear in the timbre of her voice how different it is. Uh, and it, it does open the question of, you know, how should we be approaching these lines? You know, these long-limbed, rhythmically intense, melodic lines that Joska and his contemporaries write. Do we need to sing them in a kind of reverential way? Or can we actually go out on a limb and really kind of yell them out? Uh, and I think this, this recording asks that question. You're tuned into Voice Box. I'm Chloe Veltman. Music scholar Jesse Roden is here in the studio with me for a discussion about what it means to know a piece of vocal music in depth and how this related in particular to the scholarship and performance of the music of the Renaissance composer Josquin Desprez. We just heard three tracks that illustrate some of the most articulate or interesting approaches, at least, to the performance of 15th century vocal music that have come out in recent years. First up was Alleluia o Fili o Filii by Johannes Prioris, performed by Capilla Flamenca in 2003. And then we heard a work by Johannes Tinctoris, the Kyrie from the Missa L'Homme Armé, performed by Clark's group in 1997. Finally, Musica Antiqua of London gave us a 2000 recording of Josquin's Fama Malum. Jesse, we're getting to the end of the show for tonight, um, but I'd like to take the opportunity to bring the threads of our careening discussion together. <laughs> um, how would you define knowing a piece of music intimately? Really intimately, I think, means that you've sung it, you've listened to it, you've memorized it to some degree. That's my aim. Uh, and, you know, I, I feel very bad about the number of pieces I've actually memorized. It's not that large, but um, but I'm, I'm making slow progress here. Uh, no, I think um, for me, it's, it's really getting to the point where I can recall any bit 
of the piece, give or take. I mean, I can't necessarily write it out for you from memory, but I sort of know what happens and what it sounds like. Um, and that's hard when you're dealing with a seven-minute-long piece that's with uninterrupted action, or mm -hmm. a 10-minute-long piece, or a 30-minute-long mass. But, um, you know, the way I do it very often is just to put a recording on and listen to it on repeat for sometimes months. Uh, <laughs> the music can be hard to get to know that way. But once you do, you have this insider knowledge of the way the piece goes that can then be applied to other things. Oh, this doesn't sound like that, right? And that's the sort of insights that I'm hoping to find. So it's about making connections. Absolutely. So uh, what advantages does being a scholar of early Renaissance music give you as the director of a vocal ensemble that performs this work? I think most ensembles that perform Renaissance music have to engage to some degree with the scholarship because there's so much we don't know about how the music should be performed that you, you have to look at the scholarly literature to some extent. And indeed, a lot of, the of these ensembles are run by professional musicologists of one sort or another. But a lot aren't. I know I've sung in a few <laughs> that, uh, you know, that where the, there, there is very little, if no, scholarship involved in preparing the music. Absolutely. And, you know, there, there's room for every sort of thing, right? There can be amateur ensembles singing this music in all sorts of different ways, and there doesn't, it doesn't have to be framed in terms of right and wrong, but it is nice when we know something to take advantage of our knowledge. And I think sometimes um, there are ensembles that are run by people who just don't know too much about the period. And still fun to sing, though. Still fun to sing, absolutely. So how much do we really know about Josquin at this point? Would you say that the field of 15th century music scholarship has reached a, a point of advancement, or is it still in its infancy? Say in a certain way, we're still in our infancy, uh, in the sense that we're just beginning to get our minds around the individual compositional styles of people like Josquin, let alone people like Johannes Prioris. A lot of, a lot of people will say, who? Um, <laughs> half the composers we've listened to today are in that category. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that sense, our field is really in embryo. Mm -hmm. um, in other ways, though, we're doing pretty well. You know, for all that I articulated these, these five massive problems that surround the study of Josquin's music, those of us who've spent a lot of time with it, I think, would feel reasonably comfortable coming out the other end with a list of pieces he probably wrote and with some of the things that make them distinct and make them interesting and effective. Well, thanks so much, Jesse, for coming into the studio this evening. It's been such an enormous pleasure discussing the great Renaissance composer Josquin with you. Thanks, for me too. To find out more about Cut Circle, Jesse's vocal ensemble specialising in Renaissance music, please visit cutcircle.com. And to find out about the Josquin Research Project, visit josquin.ccarh.org. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel, the web editor is Victoria Lim, and Sophia Vo is our development director. The project needs your support. Please help to keep us on the air by visiting voicebox-media.org and making a donation by clicking the support voicebox box in the right nav. You can make a one-time donation or why not become a member of Voicebox by setting up an ongoing monthly pledge for as little as $5 a month. Either way, donating to Voicebox is safe, easy and tax deductible through our online PayPal link. We love to know what you think of us, so please friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and you can write to us anytime at info at voicebox-media.org. And once again, don't forget about our free weekly podcasts on iTunes. I'll play us out with another track performed by Cut Circle, the Renaissance vocal music ensemble directed by tonight's guest, Jesse Rodin. Here's the Agnus Dei movement from Josquin's Missa L'Homme Armée Super Voces Musicalis. Have a songful week. <laughs>